Alice Notley has published over 40 books of poetry, most recently for The Ride with Penguin Books and Evrenomi Sandals with Purr. Notley has received many awards, including the Academy of American Poets Lenore Marshall Prize, the Poetry Society of America Shelley Award, the Griffin International Prize, two NEA grants, the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Poetry, and the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, a Lifetime Achievement Award. She is also a visual artist and collagist, and a book of her poem drawings is forthcoming from Archway Editions. Since 1992, Notley has lived and worked in Paris, France. Alice Notley, welcome to the creative process. Hello. To begin the interview, you, you've chosen some poems to, to read. This is a poem from certain magical acts called Two of Swords. I'm blind with my arms crossed over my breasts, sword in each hand. I seek justice and countervailing sharpnesses. You are in force and you are in force. I can't help but be both of you. I wanted to be able to take a side and will never again. These blades could slice my skin, standing as they do for our fierceness, or should I say stupidity? If I drop both swords and rip off the blindfold, I still can't leave, for I can't leave this world except internally. Who wants to see us anyway? Two parties or two sexes, two countries, armies, or two religions, two debaters, two gladiators, two contenders for one space. Is there such a thing as one space? Don't you want to go with the winners, you ask? I want this noise within me to die down. Democracy isn't efficient, and the only politics I recognize lies between us, undefined, requiring no casting of votes. It asks that we admit we're both present, all present, in the same multiform space within me or you. I would never ask that you follow me. I will never acknowledge a leader. I am my president but also I am everyone trying to be with you because I exist and always have. So it's not a great mystery why you've chosen that poem. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you very politically engaged even in the American election, even here in Paris where you live? It's hard to say whether I'm engaged or not. I, I keep up with everything, but I don't take sides. I, I just find it completely futile uh, at this point. And I, I don't seem to take sides anywhere. I, I mostly am interested in particular occasions. But everyone is asking me to be engaged. I, I wrote this after the election in 2008. So nothing changes. So, but that's interesting that you wrote that at a moment when much of the country and even around the world uh, much of America, I mean, uh, and even around the world, were, were hopeful. But you had a presentiment or you could see down the line. Well, almost everyone I talked to was incredibly partisan. And uh, I found it not very hopeful, uh, finally, because it seemed to me that everybody was very polarized. And particularly my friends with, with whom I share many of my opinions and uh, stances were so polarized, I couldn't talk to them about anything. I couldn't talk to them about the democratic process. They didn't believe it at the time. They only believed in their candidate. 
and they would only talk in a certain way. And so there was only their candidate either side. And uh, I, I, I just can't go there. I can't go there anymore ever. But <laughs> we're just getting to know each other. So <laughs> that's a, you and I, so that's a very strange place to start. <laughs> Perhaps we should start somewhere else. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting because I think it also, we, we bring it around to poetry, speaks for the need, uh, the importance of poetry and literature and the arts generally. You know, it's maybe a space that can include politics, but it's also a space where one can escape that or appreciate it on an individual level. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly a place that uh, you can make whatever you want to of it. And in the way I think, it's all-inclusive poetry. Uh, and everything is poetry in a certain way. And poetic measure is like what we're composed of. So I, I, uh, I can do anything with it I want to. And, uh, I, uh, and I admit the possibility of every possible audience. But I myself am very adventurous. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, what they call experimental. And I always do something unexpected in my books. And I hope people will come along. But sometimes they don't come along for 10 or 20 years. It's very interesting that you say that we're kind of composed of I guess meter or we're composed of poetry like that's our building block because I think that for those who appreciate poetry and those who write it will it will accept that that there's we have we're full of these rhythms we're not we're not always complete uh, sentences or we're not like logic you know even though we we think we're logical beings we're we're sensations but um I think that there's a lot of people who don't have that perspective like they didn't um they used to teach poetry at the you know even you know memorizing poems and all that it used to be something that was more part of our education system in, in america i think in different countries they've retained that to different degrees but i think there's a lot of people now that would say oh you know i could i could survive maybe i wouldn't survive without movies or whatever whatever the thing is but with poetry it's something that they don't feel they're in contact with well, I don't know about them. I mean, I just, I don't know about that. I, I think that probably people were better educated about poetry before when they were made to memorize, because that's what I'm saying, actually, that it's what happens in your body when you say the poem that makes it be like everything. And uh, I, I grew up in Needles, California, which is a very tiny town in the Mojave Desert. And I, I was very far from uh, all, all the centers of poetry. But, uh, and my mother and my father ran an auto parts store, uh, my, my father and then, then my mother, uh, called Needles Auto Supply. And you would think there was no poetry. But on the other hand, my mother had been uh, schooled in such a way that she was made to memorize poetry. And she had lines inside her. And, and uh, she knew when to say them. She knew when they were appropriate. And she liked them. And I was, as I was brought up, uh, poetry was, people around me believed that poetry was important and honorable and, uh, and a very great thing to do. Although I didn't do it and for a long time. It, it took me until uh, I was in my 20s to, to begin to write poetry. But uh, 
I still d didn't feel like there was anything there against my becoming a poet if I had the capability, which, which was another thing, how to, how to know one white might be that, but everybody approved. I mean, it, it's an ancient art. And at that point, people knew it was an ancient art. And now they don't know. They don't know what it is. They don't know what anything is. Yeah, we're we're obsessed with the new, and I'm also I want to uh, you know bring Christina Sunyak uh, in because she also fell in love with your poetry and she brought it to our attention. So the Welsh should be including Alice's work. So what spoke in you? Not from uh, America. She's calling in from uh, New York now, but Ukraine. So just speak a little bit about what spoke to you about Alice's work and what your perspective is on it. You know, not originally being from America. Maybe speak also about the relationship to poetry that you had growing up initially in Ukraine. Well, I actually this is unique. I can't really speak to that because I came here when I was six. So I lived more than half my life here in America. So I never really went through that system. I know what you mean. Memorizing poems is a big part of the post-Soviet curriculum even. I can't really speak to that. I think poetry just comes from, should come from a place that's personal. I'm really not about the formalist part. I'm more interested in like the mystical parts of it. And I think that Alice's poetry does that really well. Uh, how much of your writing is more like an exercise in channeling? and how much of it is formalism? Is it more like channeling now as opposed to earlier periods, or has it always been that? I don't know if I can use that word very well, channeling. What do you mean? You have some poems, I believe, blinding, for example. You said in a previous interview that it came from a place, like you, you heard it as a voice. You, you just heard those words coming to you, and um, you just embodied them, I suppose. Um, I, well, I, I, I hear voices and I'm in touch with voices and I, I can't write and, and unless there's a certain, a certain kind of vocal thing going on, which is very hard to describe, but, uh, I wouldn't be able to do this if I, uh, hadn't paid a lot of attention to the formal aspects of poetry. And I probably know more about those than anyone else that I know. Because, uh, and I have used them for this other purpose, uh, not not to uh, present my my formal capabilities, but to find things out and uh, to to uh, to listen to the voices of others, to incorporate them into my poetry, and sometimes to speak to the dead. You know, it's all the same thing, and the formalism and the mysticism and. Uh, the everyday qualities and the extra uh, terrestrial qualities are one wants them all to be the same thing the way that one is a person walking around being one thing good follow-up probably would be your most recent book of poetry for the ride for the ride yes it's this one i wrote it in 2010 it's 10 years old i i write all the time and it's uh, very hard for people to keep up with me so I wrote this in 2010, and it's about, a, it's, it's a, a long narrative poem, but um, it's not like that. It's about this narrator who finds itself, oneself, suddenly in a space without anything exactly, and there's, there's been a world catastrophe. And uh, the, the narrator, one, 
is is within a place that's called the glyph and at, at the beginning the, the narrator is just there and then these other people start to arrive that are sort of like projections of the narrator and they 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 take a trip to another dimension because uh, the planet they're from is kind of not there anymore and they go somewhere else they get on a ship it's all it's a, the, the, there's quite a lot of fantasy involved but they uh, they decide that the thing that they need to save from where they are, which is presumably Earth, is words. Because if you think about the human species being obliterated, then you're 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 instantly thinking about language not existing anymore, which was a very th hard thought I had while I was writing it. That uh, that if humans cease to exist, there might be no language anymore anywhere in the universe. I wasn't sure how to think about language at that point. So the, the characters proceed to change the language. And the, uh, most of the book is written with one, one gender, which is one. The, they use the pronoun one all the time, or ones. And, the, and the, the, there's a, they get to decide what tense there is, because there are only a few of them. There are only a few of them left. That's the presumption. So they could decide everything. And uh, so there's one tense, which is the present. And they get on the ship and they go to this other dimension, which is sort of like death. And everything happens in this, this play that's between the, the place that one is at the beginning and the, the ship, the characters on the ship, and then this, this, this abandoned city they wind up in. And uh, it's great, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed writing it. Um, and there are these, there are telegrams I used words to draw draw things with, because I, they they were going to this place that ha, that was indescribable, and I couldn't figure out what to do about that. So I decided to make pictures, and uh, so they're illustrations, but they're made out of words because everything's words. It's very interesting, and I would say that that's one of you know the enduring legacies of, of humans on this planet is is our language and the things that we can do with it and what we can express. There's a few threads I'd love to pull out of that because we're now living in a very, it's said to be a visual age. I mean, it depends on what your engagement. They've said that before. They said that when I was young. <laughs> that was what they said in the 60s. <laughs> well, it's even more so now. But in terms of like, sometimes if you ask people what's important or if you, in terms of the popularity of social media sites, you know, it's generational. So first generation of internet users there was a lot of text there's a lot of and there still is a lot of writing but then there's social media there was facebook and that was like a generation one of social media now now we have the instagram being more popular with younger generations so it's i don't know that's probably even considered too wordy for maybe this generation z so you do see a certain evolution or devolution to drawing out the language and replacing it with images, which is interesting or troubling, depending on your point of view. I would agree that the legacy that we, what we've contributed that's different from other animals on this planet is language. But sometimes people aren't respectful of the nuances, the different, the weight of words, the, just, just all the subtleties. Some people think that all there is is language and that images are language. And uh, there, uh, there have been a lot of university courses created to, to deal with all these problems. And it's, uh, the, they're the problems of linguists and semanticists and so forth. 
I, sp I spent a lot of time in the 90s having arguments with people about whether or not everything was language. And, and I guess what I think is that you can't separate language and image. There's no way of separating it from, out for any of us. And um, we only have what's inside of us to know with, and we know with all of it at once. So I can't, I can't do, it's, a, it's another like either or thing. I can't do it. I can't do either words or images, either this or that. It's all one. I would like to say that my next book that's coming out in the, the spring is based on some things I've been doing for Instagram. In fact, I, I started making these sort of image, these drawing poems about a year ago because I got, I, I, I had joined Instagram and then I got an Apple Pencil. And I started making these drawings that were like doodles and I would draw things and I, I would write on them and then everybody liked them. So a few months ago, a guy asked me if there could be a book of them. And now suddenly there's going to be a book of them. I have to have, I have to have the manuscript ready by December 1st. And I started doing more of them and I don't know what they are. I don't know what to call them, but everybody loves them because not just because there's there's colors and there, there's images and so forth, but because also my handwriting is on them and handwriting is becoming lost. And no, nobody, you know, there, there isn't a lot of calligraphy around anymore and people, there aren't a lot of manuscripts. And it's very strange to me, I'm almost 75, but uh, people, and so I've been handwriting for a long time, but people look at handwriting and they get very wistful and, uh, they're, and they're trying to understand what it is, you know, like what is this artifact? Whereas for me, it's like, comes from, it comes from my brain down my arm at my hand. And it's a, it, it's a, it connects to my deepest self and everybody's handwriting is different. It's another one of those things that's very individual to people, like like their vo their voices, their handwriting, and their voices are very individual. Yes, it's a kind of drawing. Because I was doing an interview with the president of the Musée Picasso on Monday, and so they have an. Ex it, it may be interesting for you to see because I didn't realize that Picasso also had written hundreds of poems. So you see, with him, I think it's not true of all artists, but with him the line was very important, just like the handwriting. His drawing was a kind of handwriting. And so we, we discussed this because it was very much all in the, the one gesture. For him even more, his mark was, some painters, are they work things over a line. He did, of course, but so much of what he did was drawing line-based. And also Hansel Obrist has this project as well about uh, preserving handwriting. He does on his Instagram. I want to go back to your use of the pronoun. So you're using the pronoun one, and I know yeah. that thinking about pronouns or personalizing things, and you have I the people was another. Yes. Uh, yes. Tell us a little bit about that too, because it's interesting. It's bringing things into a personal domain of what was broader. I wrote I the people in 1985. 1986 maybe no it was about 1985 and uh, I was living in New York and there there was a, there was an official it was like the year the one of those years where uh, it was an anniversary of the Constitution or something so er, there were these posters everywhere that said we the people and then there there would be uh, 
with the people in order to form a perfect union or whatever that is the uh the preamble to the constitution you you would see the this block of letters and i was in a my husband my first husband had died uh, a few years previously and i i didn't feel like i was part of any we and but i i i did feel that i was the people somehow so i just changed it to i the people and it seemed to me that that could be something that anyone might say to themselves, I the people. And so I wrote this poem, I the people. And uh, it's about my relation to the body politic. Uh, and, um, and it's not unfriendly at all. But, um, but at the end, I say I'm split. I'm split off from the we. I'm I. I don't know if you found the language fascinating from that level, going to the Constitution. And, and no, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful document. Here I have the poem. I the people, I the people to the things that are, were, and come to be. We were once what we know when we make love. When we go away from each other because we have been created at 10th and A in winter and of trees and of the history of houses, we hope we are notes of the musical scale of heaven. I the people so repetitious and my vision of to hold the neighbors loosely here in light of gel, my gel, my vision, come out of my eyes to hold you, surround you in gold, and you don't know it ever. Everyone, we the people, having our visions of gold and silver and silk and liquid light flowed from our eyes and caressing all around all the walls. I am a late pre in this dawn of we the people to the things that are and were and come to be. Once what we knew was only and numbers became, it is numbers and gold and a tenth and a, you don't have to know it ever. Opening words that show, opening words that show that we were once the first to recognize the immortality of numbered bodies. And we are the masters of hearing and saying at the double edge of body and breath, we the lovers and the eyes all over inside her when the wedding is over and the park lies cold and lifeless. I the people, whatever is said by the first one along, angel agate, I wear your colors. I hear what we say and what we say, and I, the people, am still parted in two and would cry. I wrote that poem when I was living on St. Mark's Place near, near Tompkins Square Park, and uh, it keeps talking about First and A. There was the, cor the corner of First Avenue and uh, no, it's not, it says 10th and A, it's 10th Street and, for, and uh, Avenue A, which is one corner of Tompkins Square Park. And I keep, I keep going there and circling around the significance of the number one and the letter A and I and we and what, what the beginning was and why there are so many of us and how, how we're estranged, but there's all this beauty. That's a very moving poem, and I love how you bring it into the personal because laws or the constitution is this impersonal thing that we think, but it's interpretation, you know, and we make space for it in our lives. And so, so writing that, you wrote through your your grief or your mourning of the loss of Ted Berrigan. Well, I uh, I did that for a number of years. Yes, <laughs> I did that for some years. I was a I was a single mother living on St. Mark's Place for. Uh, about five years after Ted died, and then I uh, I met and married uh, the British poet Doug Oliver, and he came and lived with us, and 
and then in 1992, I moved with him to Paris. My my sons had uh, had finally both uh, gone away to university, and so I came here. And he died in 2000, and I stayed on. So it's interesting because I would love to speak about the different places that you've lived. I mean, you knew New York in the time when, gosh, it's changed so much now. Um, you lived also in England. You live now in Paris for so many years. I guess what inspired, how did it, how did those places inspire you? How do you feel even your voice, did your voice change, you know, through these, picking up these other voices, these other countries, these other regions? I started out in the Mojave Desert. And I've had to take that with me, and I, I have successfully all the time. But the tan I grew up in was in the desert. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very hot tan, Needles, California. And I still have that in my voice. I still have the Southwest. And then I went, I went to Barnard. I, I, from from this, this little town in the desert, I went, I went to New York City and to Barnard College. And then, then I started traveling around, and, some, and I went to Iowa. Well, that was a little weird. I, I did feel my voice changing all the time. And then I met Ted in Iowa. Then I was in San Francisco. And then I was in Chicago. And then I was in England. Then I was back in New York suddenly in 1976, living on St. Mark's Place during the punk years. And that was, and I really absorbed a lot of New Yorkness at that point. And I, I met a lot of artistic people, but I also really listened to the people in my neighborhood. It's a very interesting neighborhood. Uh, it was very interesting. Then there were, all, there there were some punks, but there there were also these Ukrainians and Italians and all, all kinds of immigrants and all, uh, people people that were first and second generation from different countries. And then there were the people I talked to at the Gotham Book Mart at cocktail parties, and they talked an entirely different way. And I became attuned to how everybody talked and the kinds of things they were saying. And I started writing all of that down. And uh, particularly since I ha hardly ever had time to write. So I would just write down what people said and then make it into something later. Then when I, I moved to Paris, I stopped being able to do that. I couldn't write down what people said anymore because I didn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> and so, so I said, I've been, I had I had I had had one year of French at Barnard when I came here, and my husband was was British. He had a beautiful British speaking voice, uh, just just gorgeous. And uh, but I mean, everyone around me was speaking French, and I had to pick it up. And I spent the first year I was here. I made friends with a woman who who sewed curtains at Bastille. She had an atelier. She was an artisan. And I would go talk, and she knew no English, and I knew no French, and I would go talk to her. And she told me, she basically told me her life story without my understanding what she was saying, really. And uh, I mean, it, it was a very intimate kind of relationship. I would sit there for an hour once a week, and she would sew, and I would talk to her, and I would say, and I would try to speak French with her. And uh, she had had these shattering things that had happened to her in her life. And she would tell them to me. And she would have to repeat them. And I would figure it out. I'm still thinking about that. Because the, so much of our communication isn't that totally specific. There, there's, there are, it, it, it's a 
communication is very complex at any moment. And uh, it's not just words, and it's not just gestures. It's, some, it's something in, in the minds going out to each other. I keep positing telepathy. It is interesting that, and one thing about, um, you know, when you go into, when you're different levels of language acquisition, you know, like children are, tend to be more direct, usually, you know, not that they can't make up stories, but, um, but also it's, it, it, you know, I guess with the more language you acquire, the, the easier it is to hide what you're thinking and feeling. So it's interesting when you come to a, a new country and you're not quite fluent, but your other senses are maybe more open because you have to be more vigilant and more, you're taking in all these things. So I was wondering if you could describe that experience and is that, do you find that was a, a hel helpful to your poetry in a one way, that the sensuality of different, the different perception of almost being a child again in a language? And then as you become more fluent, you can be more subtle. You know what I mean? It's very hard yeah. to describe because what happened to my language was it became more wordy. It became wordier as if I was trying to turn everything that was going on around me into words without naming it because I didn't know how to name it in French. And um, it seemed to me I was picking up things, a lot of things without without it being necessarily in the in, in the part where we were talking. But on the other hand, I couldn't have communicated without trying to talk. I still don't, it, a lot of the time, it still doesn't seem to me that I speak French very well. But I've been here now for 28 years and I, I speak French every day and I read in French, but it's, it remains continuously mysterious to me. And every day I feel like an idiot at some point. And so I stay tough. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's very tough to always be dealing with a language that isn't, isn't your first language. And it's probably made me a better person and possibly a better poet, but I'm not sure. That's interesting why you say it made you a better person. Well, because uh, you can't, it's, it's hard to be arrogant all the time when you don't speak the same language as most of the people around you. I mean, you just can't keep that going, can you? And I just, lo I look at everyone and I try to make friends and uh, I don't have a lot of friends. I've gradually, I've lived in this, this same apartment now for 25 years. It's very small. And I, after a long time, I accepted that I was here and not in New York. My husband died and I had some serious illnesses and and I was just here and I've finally come to accept it and I like my neighbors I like the shopkeepers I like everyone I I like the French I I like them as a people very much and I like Parisians who are notorious for supposedly for their arrogance and pride and so forth and I really like them I I do too so I I think that that's a little bit of a a bad press. I, I don't think that that's uh, completely inaccurate. It's it's just no, I it's think not the least accurate. <laughs> well, also the thing is in France, people there is a certain etiquette and there there's manners, and so if you don't make an effort to behave in that way where you're respectful or you know you you bypass the etiquette, then you're never go you're not going to get to know people. 
It's true. It's true. And manners are nice. But uh, manner, manners from country to country are so different. And uh, I mean, the, the, there were manners when I was growing up. There were these Southwestern American manners. And they were very nice. And uh, I, I, still, I still use them sometimes. But they were, they were quite old-fashioned manners. And then in New York, everyone is kind of brusque, but it's not, they're not being mean. They're just, they're just kind of looking you in the eye. But then the Parisians look you in the eye too. And, and I found it very startling that I, to walk into a boulangerie when I first came here and to, to be confronted by the gaze of the person who was selling me the bread. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, here we are, we're looking at each other. You know, this is very important. And then I thought, well, yes, it is. It, it's daily life, and we're supposed to look at each other this way. Well, it's it's a bad generalization, but it sometimes it's true that they say that it's a little subtle here. So they say that um, in in France they see everything and say nothing, and in America they said that they they don't see everything, but they say a lot. <laughs> it's just we don't make a point of how you say defining everything. It's like we see what is going on, and we just like register it, remember it, but. Uh, don't let you know we saw <laughs> something like that <laughs> where are you from well i'm here now in paris i do go back for projects so with projects in new york and in america so i am traveling often in different countries for the project but i i, I live here a lot of the time where did you grow up well i was born in america but then i i've lived um, more of my life in europe in different countries, uh, including for the longest time I've spent anywhere is in Paris. I'm trying to locate your accent. That's what I'm <laughs> Oh, I see, I see. I think it's, it's all mixed up because I lived in Ireland, a little bit in England. I was like in oh. Italy and I, um, America, of course, the different areas. Your one's mouth gets all, uh, gets changed between all of these places. And I, I have that too. I, I, have, I have a number of, of different places in my accent. I want to ask, because you have said how a poem comes alive when you speak it. And do you see that a poem is not yet complete unless it's had its oral life? Well, I, uh, I tend to write long poems. The two I wrote are un uh, that I read so far are unusual. I tend to write long poems, and I work on them every day, but I... I uh, I have to try them out and they have to, I, I read to myself a lot alone in this room. I, I read everything aloud and make sure it works as a spoken entity or, or I can't incorporate it into the book. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's hugely important for me. And another thing that you are known for is also speaking about that you, you mentioned being a single mother at some stage and uh, is, is known for bringing the experiences of women and, and motherhood uh, into your poetry. Uh, how do you feel that you were changed as a poet by those experiences? Well, I became a poet in the, uh, around 19... I started writing my first poems around 1969, uh, but I got, I got married and pregnant in 1972. I was in my mid-20s, and I still, I still didn't have enough skills. And... I had to, I had to be able to write. I had a baby. I had a husband, and he he was associated with the New York School, which uh, involves a certain amount of contact with the quotidian. 
So I was trying to incorporate the quotidian into what I was doing, but it was about babies and there was no tradition. As far as I'm concerned, I'm the first poet ever to write about these things, but I, I didn't know anyone else who had done it. And I'm not sure anyone had done it before me in this way that I did. I, I wrote these poems out of nothing that were about being pregnant, uh, being a young mother, and then about having postpartum depression uh, with, with like real children saying real things in the middle of the poems. A, a lot of this work is out of print because uh, it was published in uh, mimeograph magazines and, uh, and books and so forth. And it's my, my earliest work. But I had this experience of having to confront my ex experience and my knowledge at the same time and being having having being given no voice for it and no form for it and having to make it myself so the, my my experience of poetry since then is of being the person that that had to struggle struggle for a form because it it, it didn't exist for me and i've been uh, i've spent the last 50 years speaking for women in my poetry but i i've been doing a lot of other things too but this generation of poets would not exist if it weren't for me and my friends. Christina, do you find there's a place now to the, where your concerns and perceptions and experiences are valorized? Because what you're speaking of now is that, Alice, is that like half of the life experience was like considered not worthy of... Not relevant, decided. even. It's like, <laughs> we weren't part of that world. I cannot really speak from the perspective of like lived womanhood, motherhood. It's definitely fascinating to listen to, but I do not think I have just the experience to speak from that perspective. I don't know. You probably understand now that I'm fascinated by things like language of soul, voices from elsewhere of tarot. I've noticed that's a big motif in your poetry. And I was just wondering how, well, you always incorporate these things in your work and you always have. But has there been perhaps a sort of transition from themes of like the personal, autobiographical, and social, like in Mysteries of Small Houses, to something that's perhaps I find is more depersonalized and occult in For the Ride? I lost both of my husbands. They both died after I had been with them for 13 years. My, I, I was 37 years old when my, my first husband died. And... Um, I was in my early 50s when my second husband died and I and other people died in my life and I've just I've had to incorporate these deaths and what I learned from the the, the fact of them into my poetry and I've changed a lot. I mean you could imagine that. And when particularly when my brother died that that was very difficult because he had been uh, he, he, was, he was a Vietnam veteran, and, uh, and his, his death was very tragic. And I, I sort of had to, I, I wasn't some normal young woman or older woman or even older woman. I just am not that. I'm this person that's been uh, shaped by these deaths, partly, partly. I don't know how else to talk about it. Uh, for the ride... Why did I write for the ride? I'm not quite sure why I read it, except that I, 
I, I, I, I sort of lost, I lost my sense of personal life somewhere along the line. And I, I started seeing everything in these bigger shapes. And I, I, I saw, I saw global warming from 1992, 1993. I wrote a long poem about global warming in 1993. And and then it, it was a subject in all of my subsequent poetry, but nobody else was talking about it very much. And nobody paid any attention to the fact that I was talking about it, but I kept seeing it. And then around 2010, I just, you know, I had the vision of the end of everything, possibly. I didn't know what that meant, that I didn't know what everything was in the end of everything or what the end was. But, you know, there's a, there's a sense that the, something crucial is playing out all the time and I seem to be involved in seeing and talking about these bigger shapes of things bigger than my life. My, my life is of no interest to me. I lost interest in it. I'm Christina, and I'm a participating collaborator with the creative process. I was drawn to Alice's poetry because of how it organically joins familiarity and intense otherness. Alice says that she has grappled with the idea that language is a uniquely human development that may not be found anywhere else in the universe. She talks about how moving to France affected her relationship with language in an unexpected way. She became more verbose often grabbing for words she may not have had or automatic dispensing her French lexicon. She also talks about how immersion in a culture quite different from her own changed her as a person and humbled her. Alice's experiences bring to mind, in contrast, those of a fellow Barnard alumna, Junpa Lahiri, who years ago made a conscious decision to shift her writing to Italian as a kind of passion project to go beyond the confines of the English language. In a relatively recent interview published in The Guardian, Junpa states that, although expression in Italian remains a continuous challenge, she finds that her writing is more essential and her thoughts less inhibited. Both writers experience their respective lost in translation moments differently upon relocation, perhaps. Junpa talks of having the advantage of a perpetual state of linguistic exile, as English is not her mother tongue and she hasn't mastered her native Bengali. A masterly writer of fiction in English, however, she describes feeling simultaneously most exposed and protected while writing in Italian after attaining fluency. To date, Alice has not published work in French, but the language informs and weaves itself into her poetry in sharp bursts of estrangement that reflect feeling distance from one's environment. People who find themselves actively using more than one language throughout their lives often experience change of language and the very act of language switching as a prelude to change of thought and character. Are these space shifts merely a side effect of cultural affectation or part of a deeper mental exercise concerning identity? Before the ride, we have each character essentially becoming, as much as I understand, a poem in a post-physical world. So with the way technology is currently repurposing and shifting language, we sort of can see this concretely through meme culture and the way that media is connecting us, but also alienating us 
would you say we are moving toward a future where everyone can be a poet? Um, no, <laughs> no, I don't, no, but I, it's not, they, they talk, the characters talk about becoming poems and they, they, they've brought all these words with them and then these words start to come out of their bodies actually and the words generate more words and more words and it's kind of what's there and it's finally what the poem is. And each one, each one has a poem, has a poem come out of one's foot. I have to say once because you don't, you don't say he or she, you say once. So each, each, each one has, has a poem come out of one's foot. And some people have poems come out of both feet. It's, it's actually rather zany. And uh, it's more, it doesn't have anything to do with media, uh, current media though, or anything like that. It was before the media craze that I wrote this. It was 2010, it was before everything suddenly was internet, everything, you know, it was like right on the verge of it. And uh, I, I don't find much hopeful in this, this terrible interconnectivity that's been caused by, by the internet. I'm not a great fan, but I obviously use it because it's what there is. But uh, it's very bad for us, actually. And we could do without it. We don't need it. It's another thing we don't need. Whereas you're doing exhibitions and projects for the next UN Conference for Climate Change in Glasgow, and I think that that's something that's been on everyone's minds, you were more engaged with it. Early. Some of us are only facing it now or accepting the urgency, but it is, it is the urgency, if not one of, I think, the urgent thing we must all address. It affects us all. This poem is called Des Amers. And I, I wrote it right after I moved to France. And it begins in a global warming desert. And there's a woman named Amer. And the poet Robert Desnos, who was a French surrealist poet. And he's there dead. And he tells, and, and then there's the woman's brother, who's clearly my brother. And Robert Desnos becomes this figure who talks about the future to Amer. And this is what the beginning sounds like. Overhead at night, above the planet, identity gone to sleep. Look what I've done, end of century, world so human, it may become a desert. Doesn't it feel like one anyway? Approach a desert then, in a prophecy. An America, now and later, flat and cut with washes. What nondescript hardy little bushes. In the distance, treeless mountains, then a campfire, someone's here. Small orange haloed of flame, people sit around it, two, man and woman, well lit, a third standing, distanced from the two, tending towards them nervously. I dropped the shell, he says, but I'm not responsible for the misaim. Someone else set the sights. He's speaking to the woman. She's middle-aged, brown desert face. I believe you, she says. When you die, I take it hard. The man who sits with her is different wears glasses, a somewhat mid-century suit. His eyes are closed. He seems to talk in his sleep. You're both caught in time separate from your condition now, he says, still causing it. You can't leave your pasts. I'll try to dream you out of them. Faceless people at the fire, further back from it, hard to see, murmur to each other, sometimes say things to the three, and one says to the dreamer, who are you? Robert Desnos, he says, dead and happy. My intention is to be happy, 
even if our world should disappear, I see you better than you do because I'm foreign and because I died in 1945, the last time things seemed clear. He's quiet now and the others are focused on the fire, waiting to hear the voice of Desnos again and wondering where the world is. That's what it's like. I think that that's just wondering where the world is indeed. It's something that we try to think about also with this project, which is about celebrating the arts, but also what is the social responsibility of the arts? And then I think with the arts, we're considered dreamers, but we really try to think about what is the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. You know, what do we want? How can we make the world a better place? Uh, so leaving poetry a bit behind or talking about the importance of the arts within the context of these other systems, whether, as you started this conversation, the political domain, education, global warming, all these important issues, and how might we improve them to leave the world a better place for future generations? I think people have to, they have to learn how to give things up. And that, that's probably the most important thing, giving things up right now. There, there's too much clutter everywhere, and it, it's, uh, and it's, it's just ruined everything. It's ruined the planet. Uh, if people could just see themselves as people, as ones who don't need to have things. And poetry is about not having things. You have the poem. You can just have it. You don't even need it on a page. You don't, even, you know, you don't need anything to make it up, to to write it. You can make it up out of air. You can make it do, make it with your voice. It's it's about having nothing. And we need less. We need fewer cars. We need f we need fewer the things in the atmosphere. We need uh, we we need to eat less. We need less of everything, and we will be happier with less. <laughs> I think that's so true. I've been asking that question of a lot of people and actually no one said it as clearly as that. Yeah, we, we can, happiness doesn't come from the objects that we accumulate. We, it, it distances us often, things that are most important. That's true. We need food, we need air, it's true, but the nourishment that can come from a poem, the companionship is, uh, how can you measure that? No, you can't. No, it's, it's what we are. It's what we are. I mean, we're poetry. The Creative Process wants to thank you for the intimacy of your writing, your meditations on the individual and also the greater issues like global warming or politics, your meditations on renewal and death and women's lives and the poetic possibilities of all our lives. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Christina Tuniak with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Christina Tuniak. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Yang Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicola Sanadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at